Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Lots of enthusiasm on this Friday morning. We thank the Cookie Learn people from the Culinary Medicine Program for this morning's breakfast. There is, because when we do the demonstration kitchen, we usually have a quiz, a trivia question. The question was described, two strategies for low-cost cooking or cooking on a budget. Picked at random. What is this response which says beans for protein and shop at Stearns, our uh, local vegetable market in White River Junction for fresh produce? This was a very good answer and it was Sherry Keller. So Sherry, please come up. We have for you a weekly meal planner. And Sherry, there's a jar of grains and beans here as well. Well done. Nicely done. Thank you, Sherry. Another quick announcement. The activity code for today is posted there. It's small z, small h, 4, 3 to claim your CME credit. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Stephen Holt to us today. He's visiting from New Haven and Yale. Uh, Dr. Holt went to James Madison University as an undergraduate, graduating summa cum laude. He got his master's then at Yale in neurosciences. He then went on to Columbia School of Medicine for his MD. Went back to Yale and did his primary care residency program, intern and resident and chief resident, and then joined the faculty there where he's now an assistant professor of medicine. He's been incredibly dedicated in his career to the education of the house staff and students and education at each level, winning an award last year, uh, the New Investigator and Educator Award from the Association for Medical Education and Research in Substance Abuse. He's been a, an awarded Teacher of the Year. He also won both in medical school and then as a faculty member the, uh, the Leonard Tao Humanism and Medicine Awards. So he is someone who has dedicated his career now to education, but he also has dedicated his career to, within that education, musculoskeletal education. He's very well known for creating modules on instruction in musculoskeletal disease. But the focus of his time here today, and a big focus of his, his career, is working in addiction recovery. And he is the director at uh, St. Raphael's in New Haven for an addiction treatment unit. He's going to talk to us today about alcohol and, and uh, addiction, and we are delighted to welcome him here. Thank you, Stephen, for coming up from New Haven today. Thanks so much for that really kind introduction and for your hospitality. It's been a pleasure to come up here. It's my first time up at Dartmouth, and uh, it was a real treat to go out to the Pine Restaurant last night. It was really living in style here in Dartmouth, uh, really fine dining and great company. So I have no financial disclosures to report today, and uh, I'm going to start off by presenting a case, as Grand Rounds often does. So this is a 57-year-old unemployed IT consultant who's presenting with tremulousness and fall three days after having voluntarily stopped drinking. He's actually sent in by his significant other. Most recently, he says he's been drinking up to a pint of vodka every day. His relapse, this most recent relapse, was triggered by some continued financial stressors at home, 
And in looking at his past medical history, he has pretty well-controlled bipolar disorder, but he admits to multiple prior admissions for alcohol intoxication and withdrawal, at least four times just in the past six months. Again, he's admitted for alcohol withdrawal. He's discharged a week later, very much in keeping with all the prior admissions where he gets this inpatient treatment, gets detoxif detoxified with benzodiazepines, and is sent out the door with uh, some sort of discharge plan. In this case, he's advised to attend Alcoholics Anonymous, as he has had some success with them in the past. He's uh, going to join an intensive outpatient program locally and follow up with his new primary care provider at our, our uh, St. Rayfield's uh, Yale New Haven uh, adult primary care clinic. And the question that I put to you guys, and I hope that we can answer over the course of the next 45 minutes or so, is, is there anything else that we can do to try and really deliberately decrease his risk of relapse? Which brings me to my outline today. We're going to talk about how alcohol use disorder is common. It is highly stigmatized. It's associated with considerable morbidity. We'll talk about current pharmacotherapies that are effective, that are accessible by non-specialists, and are profoundly underutilized today. We'll identify the factors which contribute to this gross underutilization of these treatments. And lastly, I'll describe an educational model that we're using down at Yale designed to optimize treatment of alcohol use disorder and addictions more generally. So this figure depicts the full spectrum of alcohol consumption, right? So at the very base of the pyramid are those who abstain from alcohol altogether. Moving up from there are those who drink what's called below at-risk levels. The level at that dotted line there represents the level beyond which extensive research has shown evidence of harm to various organ systems or um, other uh, types of social harms. That level has been agreed upon by the World Health Organization, amongst another, uh, other organizations, as men who drink more than four drinks on one occasion, or more than 14 drinks in a week, and then women if they have uh, more than three drinks on one occasion, or more than seven drinks in a week. Once you exceed that limit, and maybe, maybe, maybe many of you are looking at that limit right now and wondering, that seems a little low, uh, or maybe not, I don't know, just putting that out there. Uh, above that level is uh, officially unhealthy alcohol use, certainly if it's sustained over time and you didn't just go to a wedding last weekend. So uh, unhealthy alcohol use is then broken up into two subcategories, at-risk drinking and then alcohol use disorder. So alcohol use disorder then is further defined by the DSM-5 as uh, according to these 11 diagnostic criteria, and they're kind of being summarized here into these very brief uh, bullets here, but these are the 11 diagnostic criteria, and depending upon how many you meet, oh, that's the wrong button, there you go, you either meet, uh, have mild, moderate, or severe alcohol use disorder um, based on how many of those criteria that you, that you meet. And going back and talking to Mr. K, my patient, and going sort of through this list with him, we found that he met all 11 criteria. So not a subtle diagnosis uh, to make in this gentleman. And I suggest, or I, I, uh, I suppose that many of you encounter these, um, this population all the time on the wards. You'll note, though, that nowhere in these first few slides have I used the term alcoholic or abuser or even the word addict. Um, uh, the word alcoholic has really been discarded as a term that is not really clinically useful or, or meaningful. And even the words abuse and dependence from the old DSM-IV criteria have also been discarded in favor of this term alcohol use disorder for reasons that we'll go into in just a moment. 
First, let's just take a look at this picture of uh, various alcoholic beverages, each of which has their own concentration of alcohol, and a standard drink is defined by different volumes depending upon the concentration of alcohol. So you guys have probably seen this before, but a 12-ounce beer is considered a standard drink unit. 1.5 ounces of whiskey or any spirit is a, is a standard drink, and uh, five ounces of wine. Incidentally, I'm pretty sure that that is more than five ounces of wine there. Uh, <laughs> That would be a very generous pour, I think. Um, so looking at our patient, though, he said he's drinking a pint of vodka a day. And we all know from the imperial measurement system, a pint is 16 ounces, of course. And so using a little bit of math, 1.5 ounces goes into 16 about 10 times. So he's drinking 10 standard drinks a day. And I think if any of us were drinking 10 beers in a day, there'd be pretty much consensus that, that that's a problem, right? So the question is, is that problem alcohol abuse? Should we be using the term alcohol abuse? Well, if I told you that instead this patient was consuming, I don't know, too much sugar, would we say that that person had a sugar abuse problem and was a sugar addict? No, we'd say that they have diabetes, right? <laughs> well, what if, uh, you know, it's very easy for us to say that somebody who uses bath salts is an abuser or a junkie or an addict, but what if they just consume too much table salt? No, they have hypertension. We don't say that they have an addiction problem. And likewise, if you play too much tennis and you get tennis elbow, is that, is that an abuser of tennis? <laughs> I'm being facetious here, but the point I'm trying to make is that stigma really does matter, and it impacts not just uh, providers, but also patients who may be less likely to approach their physician or a primary care provider with an abuse problem than they would to discuss any other chronic medical disease. If you allow me to harp on this for just another moment, uh, those who know me know that I have a, a host of uh, these antique textbooks in my office that I've just been collecting over the past uh, decade or so. This is one of my favorites. It's a library of health from 1904, and it is essentially a modern-day version of WebMD. And you can imagine that it might have graced the shelves of many families' homes uh, and at the turn of the century, uh, the prior century, and uh, basically would have served as a resource for various treatments and diagnoses of ailments of the time. So there's a whole section in this book on alcoholism, and I just wanted to read you one uh, brief excerpt. That I have in my bag right here. <laughs> just remember to pull it out. <clears throat> It's also shown there, but it's easier for me to read it here. So, uh, the use of alcohol. The habitual and excessive use of alcoholic beverages is harmful in the extreme to the moral nature. Startling facts corroborate this opinion. They are historic. Scarcely a community is exempt from the evils of intemperance. One result most common is the loss of self-respect. Men addicted to this vice descend to the grossest immoralities. Before the taste and burning desire for liquor was acquired, they were decorous and dignified, but degraded by the demoralizing appetite they present with the most pitiable spectacle of self-humiliation. All moral excellence disowned or lost. The author goes on to talk about how alcohol degrades genius, destroys social affections, crushes paternal feeling, there's a loss of ambition, stifles consciousness, destroys the will, and my personal favorite, has general evil effects. Now, while this may in some ways depict some of the very real consequences of severe alcohol use disorder, I think you can see in just a few sentences how, how the world viewed addiction at that time as a disease of the will. 
even a disease of the conscience. It was a purely moralistic problem. This is in contrast now to decades of scientific research that show us that alcohol is a brain disease. And yet that old stigmatization from that time period still persists today, and it hinders the acceptance of evidence-based treatments by both patients and providers alike. The impact of unhealthy alcohol use in, uh, the, in the world is devastating. This may come as a surprise, but according to the World Health Organization in 2014, looking at every disease that you've ever learned about in medical school, unhealthy drinking is the number one leading cause of death and disability among ages 15 to 49. The number one cause. If you start including um, you know, childhood diseases and then also uh, late geriatric conditions, then other things sort of come into play. If you look at the entire age spectrum, then alcohol becomes the fifth leading cause of death and disability overall for the human population on the planet. I'll add here that there's been necessarily a lot of press and attention devoted to the opiate uh, epidemic and the tragic deaths associated with opiate overdoses uh, over the past for the five years in particular. And as an addiction medicine specialist, I in no way would want to diminish um, uh, the attention devoted to that and the horrific toll that that really has had on our, on our nation, uh, both locally and nationally. But it's worth mentioning that the burden of alcohol use uh, absolutely dwarfs the effects of opiates and illicit drug use and all illicit drug use combined um, presently. So this is a list of the top 15 causes of death. <clears throat> Again, this is 2014. And you note that alcohol is not on the list. And that's because alcohol intoxication itself is actually a pretty rare cause of death as a direct cause of death. Instead, alcohol exacts its toll on, on, on human life by virtue of its uh, relationship with other uh, direct causes of death. For example, alcohol being a significant risk factor for um, various head and neck cancers, gastric cancers, of course, uh, motor vehicle accidents, um, any number of other things that you can see on that list there. That's how alcohol generally meets out its, um, its, its effects. It's certainly not an invisible killer. Uh, it's actually highly prevalent in the United States and quite visible. Anyone who's worked um, in the outpatient setting knows that uh, the prevalence of, uh, of alcohol disorder is, is pretty high, especially if you're looking for it. Oftentimes it's overlooked if you're not looking for it. And then likewise, if you worked on a general medicine service um, here at, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, I'm sure uh, the prevalence on a general medicine service is, um, I assume, just as high as it is down in New Haven. <laughs> Ultimately, then, we can conclude that unhealthy drinking is remarkably common. It is highly stigmatized. It exacts a devastating toll, uh, both globally and nationally. And yet, despite this, as we'll see, unhealthy alcohol use remains sorely under-treated. Which brings me to the second section of my presentation. So let's go back to our case for a moment. So our patient does, in fact, follow up in the adult primary care center. He meets his new primary care provider. He is actually having some trouble accessing the nearby IOP, so we help him to navigate that. He has returned to going back to AA meetings, but he is so terrified that he's going to relapse because he's looking at the past six months. He knows it's just going to take one thing, one trigger, and he's going to fall back um, and, and fall so far back yet again. He wants to know if there's anything else that we can do to help. 
So the treatment spectrum for unhealthy alcohol use, and I should add, we're not talking about acute detoxification here. We're talking about the maintenance uh, phase of, uh, of unhealthy uh, alcohol use. The four basic components are, are depicted there. And depending upon where you are on that pyramid sort of dictates which groups of these four categories would be most uh, prudent to use. And also, depending upon the severity of your illness, these may work more or less effectively um, based on severity. We're, it's worth mentioning that those at the very tippy top of this pyramid, there we go, the top of the alcohol disorder pyramid, those are the ones that are most disabled. And those are the ones who are going to benefit, for example, from residential treatment and specialist care. <clears throat> but I'm going to argue to you that the rest of the patients on this pyramid um, would be served perfectly well by primary care providers. Well, again, I'm not going to talk about residential treatment. Uh, moving on to counseling, there's four major modalities, uh, or three major modalities within the counseling arena that are the most studied. And I'm not going to go into detail to talk about how they're different and how they may benefit folks, but there is clearly uh, uh, data behind them to support especially adverse drinkers. And what I would, though, like to spend just a moment on is to talk about mutual self-health groups uh, like AA um, that have been around for a long time. Uh, everyone has some opinion of AA, and I figured we should touch, touch base about it for a moment. So AA has been around actually since the 1930s. It was actually founded by a doctor and a lawyer. And it's based on this 12-step recovery model, which is shown in very small print for all of you here. Um, it describes the specific attitudes, beliefs, and actions that are believed to be crucial to the recovery process. Um, meetings are taking place multiple times of day, uh, pretty much in every city in, in the country and pretty much in every city in the world, um, with nearly 2 million members when it was last unofficially counted. Now, you can imagine this is a really tricky population to study, right? This is uh, a group of people who are coming and going. They are anonymous. That's the nature of the, of the, uh, of the group. And also, you can't really force people to attend. When, they, when you do force people to attend, it tends to not be very effective. So it's a very tricky population to study, and lots of different study designs have, have tried to parse out if this is really an effective thing that we should recommend or not. Well, suffice it to say that after uh, meta-analyses of over 100 studies, um, putting all that data together, it's shown a moderate beneficial effect of attending 12-step groups on par with seeking help, professional help from a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So I recommend AA to all of my patients, uh, acknowledging that it may not be the right thing for everybody, and there are certain uh, barriers that some people feel towards AA. But I know that it's free, I know that it's effective, and there's never been any evidence of harm. So I routinely recommend it uh, to, to my patients. <clears throat> it's good to get to know the AA uh, meetings going on in your area. So you've got one going on tonight, guys. I don't expect, I don't uh, think all of you should show up at the same time. Um, but it is worth going to visit your AA meetings locally to get to know um, how they run. And when you're talking to patients about it, you can say, oh, yeah, I know that meeting. That's a good one. It's a small group. It's a large group. It's very secular. It's very religious. It's whatever. Um, you're always invited to come to AA meetings. Um, but again, don't all go at once. That would be really awkward. Um, this is actually located right down the street, I guess. I think we're up here somewhere. And there it is down there at this church. Um, but they're going, of course, uh, every day of the week there's meetings. So then we come to pharmacotherapy, which is, of course, the, the focus point for my talk today. 
Before we jump into a discussion about pharmacotherapy, though, it behooves us to reflect on, again, how, the, how our uh, perspective about addiction has evolved over the past century or so. In contrast to that moralistic view that I uh, showed you in that Library of Health excerpt, decades of scientific investigation have really elucidated the exact mechanisms by which an ingested substance, whether it's alcohol or heroin, can lead to these chronic neurochemical changes in the brain. It's kind of summarized in this figure um, here. When an individual ingests an excessive quantity of alcohol, uh, say uh, three martinis, they naturally become intoxicated. And while oftentimes we focus on the GABAergic and glutamatergic neurotransmitter systems, it turns out that alcohol Alcohol also leads to the release of dopamine within the mesocortical limbic tracts, as well as endorphins. Endorphins, that's the opiates part of our body, and those are released from the pituitary and hypothalamus, and those are responsible for those rewarding, pleasant, uh, pleasurable effects of drinking alcohol. The trouble is that those pleasurable effects um, that come out are actually very short-lived. And not only are they short-lived, but they lead to these downstream uh, chronic neurobiological changes that reinforce binge drinking behavior, especially with repeated cycling um, through this, uh, this pathway. So while initially a patient may have experienced some degree of euphoria when they consumed alcohol, now over time they're experiencing dysphoria when they don't have alcohol in their brains. They start to have anxiety about the notion of not having alcohol. They start to experience mild tremors or mild symptoms of withdrawal, which only perpetuates the anxiety and the uh, a constant craving for when they're going to find their next drink of alcohol. Studies have shown that by the time a patient reaches this stage, they're no longer even able to experience or derive benefit or pleasure from normal physiologically reinforcing stimuli, like eating good food or hearing good music, spending time with friends and family, sex, etc. Alcohol has essentially hijacked the reward pathways of the brain, and which only deepens the relationship between the alcohol drinker and the alcohol itself. As you might imagine, strength of will is going to be no more able to reverse those neurochemical changes than it would reverse beta islet cell destruction in the pancreas in a, in a type 1 diabetic, right? So it should come as no surprise that in the treatment of alcohol use disorder, the use of medications which can counteract those maladaptive changes uh, may, may make sense. It may be a part of the armamentarium. So with that, let's take a look at our pharmacotherapy options. You could basically break up pharmacotherapy options into two main categories. You've got FDA-approved ones, like the Sulfram, which has been around for a very long time, like Camprosate and Naltrexone, of which there's two varieties. And then you've got your non-FDA-approved uh, group. Now, in the non-FDA-approved group, there are, I could probably put 10 different medications up there that have some data behind them. But these are the two that have the best data behind them to date. Um, and gabapentin is a fairly new kid on the block in the realm of alcohol use disorder, but it's been around for many decades for the uh, treatment of other conditions, of course. But either way, those are the top, <clears throat> top two in the non-FDA-approved category. So I show this slide because I want to highlight that these medications are not understudied. Uh, they've actually been around for a very long time. There are over 100 well-designed studies of these medications of tens of thousands of patients included in various meta-analyses. I'm only showing here these, this number of studies. There's two to three times as many studies that have actually been done on each of these medications. I'm highlighting the ones that are uh, reviewed as the highest 
quality and the ones that end up getting their way into uh, systemic, I mean, uh, meta-analyses, systematic reviews. Um, so those are the, the, the best of the best. And looking at the number needed to treat and the effect sizes, these are good effect sizes. This is uh, robust number needed to treat data. And again, since they've been around for at least 10 years, uh, uh, some of which considerably longer, we know that there's an abundance of safety data on these medications um, as well. How to prescribe these medications is somewhat beyond the scope of my talk uh, today. Um, though I will go into some detail about one of them. I'll merely emphasize that these medications are safe, they're well tolerated, and they're worth um, getting more familiar with. The recommendation is to offer them to all patients with alcohol use disorder if they're currently drinking, if they're experiencing uh, cravings, or if they're feeling at risk for relapse, as our patient, uh, Mr. K, um, expressed. We generally treat for a minimum of three months, oftentimes longer, six to 12 months or, or more. They're, like I said, fairly benign medications and have long-term safety data, so it's reasonable to continue that. I should just mention, don't give that soft frame while someone's actively drinking. Antabuse is a potent um, inhibitor that would cause a self-harm reaction, which is like having a hangover in a span of 30 minutes. So don't do that. But everything else is totally uh, safe to prescribe while somebody's actively drinking. Since it's relevant for our patient, as we'll see, I do want to talk a little bit about naltrexone. Um, so naltrexone is shown here. There's a, an oral formulation, which is uh, 50 milligrams once a day. And then there's this injectable formulation, uh, which is a, uh, a monthly depot shot, which is given in the buttock, actually. And you might be uh, wondering how on earth would naltrexone, which, as you may recall, is a full opiate blocker, how is that possibly going to help with alcohol? Well, remember that, uh, so a patient here is loosely dysphoric. Initially, they drink some alcohol, they feel better. But the reason they feel better is not just because of dopamine, but because endorphins are released. And so if you do the same person, and now you add naltrexone to the system, when they drink alcohol, you're blocking the effects of the endorphins. And so you're uncoupling the relationship between drinking alcohol and experiencing pleasure. You can't stop the dopamine part of it, but at least you're stopping the, the endorphin release part of it. <coughs> So that's how naltrexone essentially works. It's a very safe medication. Naturally, as an opiate blocker, you can't use it in somebody who's also on opiate pain medications for whatever reason. And other side effects to be aware of is that uh, I'd say 10 to 15% of people experience nausea over the first few days. That goes away. Headache and depression. Initially, there was concerns about hepatotoxicity, but they were using a larger dose in the initial studies. Since then, um, I've prescribed this medication to folks with child's puke class A and B cirrhosis, and, I've, and, and we've still done very well with this medication. So it is, it is quite safe as long as you're keeping an eye on liver function tests in, those, in that population. And then lastly, as I mentioned, it is an injection into the buttock, so you can have injection site reactions um, just like you could with any, <clears throat> any injection. It's given in the buttock, by the way, because it's four cc's, which would be a lot to put into somebody's deltoid. Um, it's a big shot. But they keep coming back, so it's okay. All right, so let's go back to Mr. K. We reinforced continued AA attendance. I really prescribe it to many of my patients um, because I know of its benefits. He was concerned about taking more pills. He was already on several medications, wasn't interested in taking more medications, so he opted to go with uh, monthly naltrexone intramuscular uh, shots, also called Vivitrol. And we arranged to have follow-up in the Yale Addiction Recovery Clinic uh, a week later. 
So reflecting back on Mr. K's care, one might ask, what is the setting that is most appropriate to prescribe this pharmacotherapy? Does it, is it best to, to start out here with specialty care? Remember, our patients started off, I started off this story in a hospital. So it, you know, we could obviously refer them directly to specialty care, or we can go to primary care. But where's the place where these medications should really be started? This question was addressed in a study known as the Combined Study, very well known, it was published back in 2006. And they were basically trying to evaluate the efficacy of medications, behavioral interventions, and their combination. And what they did was they made sure that all patients in the study, this was a very large study, all got something called medical management. And this was designed to be a very basic uh, primary care delivered amount of, in, of, uh, of um, treatment that all patients got was designed to be replicable in a primary care setting, um, delivered by physicians, nurses, PAs, various folks who could, who could uh, function in the, in the primary care practice. And it was a, an initial 45-minute 45 45 minute visit, followed by eight 20-minute visits um, uh, over the course of the next uh, several months. Not unlike how you would manage somebody with uh, brand newly diagnosed uncontrolled diabetes, right? You initially get them in, it's a long extended visit, you're telling them what diabetes is, you're getting them started on insulin, they're meeting with a, a nutritionist, maybe a nurse educator, and you're going to see them pretty frequently for those first um, several months of care. And that's what this was designed to look like up front. And then there was treatment arms. The interventions included naltrexone versus placebo. I'm boiling the study down to just those interventions. There were some other arms as well. So naltrexone versus placebo. And then they had this intensive behavioral intervention by a specialist um, called combined behavioral intervention. This was really intensive. It was one hour visits multiple times over the span of four months, um, really not designed for primary care setting. It was really an addiction specialist kind of setting. And then they looked at combinations of both. So shown here is the, uh, the summary statistics for this particular arm of the study. And uh, it's the odds ratio for a good composite outcome. Now, in the addiction medicine literature, a good composite outcome doesn't just mean abstinence. There's many other good outcomes. Uh, did you reduce how much they drink? Did they have more non-drinking days? Um, and then you can look at other sort of man manifestations like the reduction in liver function tests, things like that. So in any, case, in any case, the odds ratio for good composite outcome is shown here for these four different parts of the study. And on the top, you have um, the, the, the uh, placebo arm, no extra intervention and no medication. And then scrolling down to the very bottom here, this is now Trexone alone without that combined behavioral intervention, that intensive intervention. And what you can see here is that uh, naltrexone alone, with none of that extra addiction specialist care, fared just as well, if not better, than all the other arms of this study. So what this says is that naltrexone, with again that baseline primary care medical management, can yield clinically significant outcomes comparable with specialty intensive behavioral therapy. Said another way, pharmacotherapy for alcohol use disorder can be managed by primary care providers without the assistance of intensive specialty treatment. So going back to our treatment setting slide here, this data supports the notion that the 18 million persons in the United States who would benefit from treatment with alcohol, with alcohol use disorder, uh, we can actually get them to get treated in primary care rather than having to wait for them to go and see specialists. 
But again, what about the inpatient side? Is there a role for starting these medications on the inpatient side? And that study, or that question, has also been addressed. This was a proof of concept study out at UCSF. It's really a pre-post type of study. It was not a randomized controlled trial. And they were trying to see if a simple educational intervention could uh, lead to changes in uh, use of naltrexone at discharge. So this was 250 medicine inpatients they initially screened. They found that 64 of them had criteria for alcohol use disorder. This is probably pretty typical. And they found that 61% of those patients, 39 of them, were eligible for naltrexone, meaning they weren't otherwise on opiates or had um, other contraindications. Of those 39 patients who were eligible for naltrexone, None of them got naltrexone. That's kind of the standard of care right now. That's the reality is that no one's really giving these medications on the inpatient side. Of note, within 30 days, 19% of them were back in the hospital. And this is probably consistent with what we see all the time, right? These patients discharge and they come back less than 30 days later. This cycle repeats just like in our patient, Mr. K. So then all they did was take the 15 internal medicine residents and interns who were on the wards, and they gave them a one-hour intervention. It was just a training hour where they talked about the different medications that can be used to treat alcohol use disorder, and they focused on naltrexone and the safety and efficacy of this medication. And then they did a post-study. Again, another two, 300 patients. Patients with alcohol use disorder were identified. Half of them were eligible for naltrexone. And now, 64% of those patients got naltrexone. So the educational intervention worked. It was really easy to make sure that naltrexone was uh, given out to all of these uh, patients at discharge. But most importantly, from the patient's perspective and also from the hospital's perspective in terms of their bottom line, only three patients came back to the ER within 30 days. Now, again, this was not a randomized controlled trial, purely a proof of concept study. There's another study that's ongoing right now <clears throat> to really look if you can randomize people um, to, to the naltrexone arm uh, from an inpatient setting. We'll see how that plays out. But either way, the study suggests that perhaps we don't need to wait until they're discharged before we start these medications. And, uh, and perhaps we can consider these medications as a resource available to us at any uh, point along um, this spectrum. Oh, I think I froze. Oh, there we go. Sorry. Great. What I'm now going to show you, though, is that despite the fact that alcohol use disorder pharmacotherapy can and should be offered by specialists, primary care providers, and inpatient staff, these medications are actually profoundly underutilized. In 2012, all privately insured patients, of all of them, only 3% received any pharmacotherapy. 3% in 2012. In 2013, of the 18 million people who needed treatment for alcohol use disorder, only 14% received any form of treatment, and treatment was even, even included simply going to an AA meeting was considered treatment, and less than 7% received help from physicians or other health professionals. So what we're seeing is a huge treatment gap here. So why is that? Why are these safe and effective medications sitting on the shelf? Well, perhaps we should take a step back for a moment and get a little bit of perspective. So I've just told you that pharmacotherapy compared with placebo for maintaining abstinence or reducing heavy drinking days, the number needed to treat is around 5 to 12. So uh, if you've ever used gabapentin, for example, to treat alcohol use disorder in the inpatient or outpatient setting, raise your hand for me. If you've ever used gabapentin in that setting. All right, a couple of hands here, maybe 10, 10, 12 hands. So now let's look at depression. So SSRIs, 
for the treatment of a comparable placebo for the treatment of depression, looking for a clinically significant outcome, how many people have ever prescribed an SSRI in this room? Raise your hand. All right, pretty much everybody. No surprise there. Number needed to treat is about the same. It's about the same. How about um, statins versus placebo? I'm not going to ask how many people in this room have prescribed a placebo. I know all the hands will go up. For primary prevention of one non-fatal MI, number needed to treat? 104. You have to treat 104 people to prevent one non-fatal MI. And of course, for the inpatient teams right now, DBT prophylaxis, that there's all kinds of checks and balances and quality measures to make sure we don't forget the heparin sub-Q, people. You've got to treat them with 345 patients to reduce one non-fatal PE. One. So we come to a paradox. On the one hand, alcohol, major cause of death and disability, number one cause, ages 15 to 45, globally and nationally. Highly prevalent, it's not like we're not seeing this, right? It's everywhere, it's all around us. Medications that I've shown you are comparably more effective, and certainly as, as effective as many commonly prescribed medications, and they're not prescribed. So what's our disorder? <laughs> I got this email from one of our PGY2 residents about a year ago. And he starts off, hi, Dr. Holt. I'm hoping you can point me in the right direction to answer a question. I'm working on the generalist uh, medicine service right now, general medicine service. And I was planning to, to prescribe naltrexone for a patient that was admitted with alcohol use disorder. He's being referred to an IOP program. I see this email. I'm actually pretty excited. I'm like, wow, they're starting to get the message. It's getting out there. These people are starting to prescribe these medications. Uh, very, very good news. Then he goes on to write, my attending was hesitant to start pharmacotherapy on discharge. He preferred to defer to the outside providers. Okay, all right, fine. They, they turned out to be really valuable since the, the IOP, they, uh, aren't, they don't want to continue a prescription if we initiated an inpatient, and they apparently do not. And then his primary care provider bailed on me as well, does not feel comfortable prescribing this medication. My whole world is crashing around me, right? This is just <laughs> devastating. The whole treatment setting thing is garbage. And left with rats. So there was a survey done of 59 providers in 2010 where they cited the barriers to prescribing alcohol use disorder as follows. Number one, low patient demand. Patients aren't asking for it. Price and insurance coverage concerns, perceived lack of effectiveness, and lack of skills and knowledge about how, how to do this. So let's look at the low patient demand issue. Uh, in 2010, of the few veterans who were offered medications for alcohol use disorder, over 80% accepted and filled the prescription. So if you offer it to them, they're more than happy to take it. <coughs> Likewise, a small study at University of Buffalo, among medically hospitalized patients with alcohol use disorder, 66% of them agreed with the statement, if a medicine could help, me could help to prevent drinking, I would like a prescription for it. So if you don't offer it to them, I'm not going to ask for it because it's not marketed, of course. Compared with Lexapro, for example, boys, there are a lot of marketing for SSRIs. In the first uh, two years of sales, there was $1.7 billion netted from their advertising compared with, as of 2007, the sales of all FDA-approved alcohol use disorder medications combined made $78 million. These are not medications. Have you ever seen a, a commercial for a campersate or, uh, or Vivitrol or, uh, or uh, Antibuse. Likewise, price and insurance coverage concerns, these medications are comparably pretty cheap, 14 to $70 per month. 
they're completely and fully covered by Medicaid and have negligible co-pays with other insurers. The one expensive uh, Chrysler LeBaron on the block is IM Naltrexone. It does cost a pretty penny, but it's fully covered by Medicaid and with minimal co-pays by other insurers. Why is it completely covered by Medicaid? Because they know it works. There's cost-benefit analyses showing that these medications actually reduce recidivism and return to the hospital. So they want you to prescribe it. Third, perceived lack of effectiveness. I hope that I've at least given you some uh, suggestion that these medications are, in fact, effective. And lastly, we come to the lack of skills and knowledge among providers. So, which brings me to the last section of my talk, uh, describe an educational model designed to optimize treatment of alcohol use disorder. So let's take a look at, in general, how residency program education around alcohol use disorder or addiction in general um, is going on currently. This is an excerpt from the painfully detailed 57-page ACGME program requirements. I'm sure Harley's familiar with this document. It's a painful document. It was revised just a few months ago again. And to this day, it has nary a mention of the words substance abuse nor addiction anywhere in its 57 pages, uh, despite listing all of the experiences that house staff should uh, benefit from or enjoy during their training. In fact, it even lists down here in the bottom. There's no way you guys could read that. Uh, it lists all of the different subspecialty experiences that residents should encounter, but notably lacking from that list is addiction medicine, which I'll be informing or reminding many of you, addiction medicine officially became a subspecialty within internal medicine in March of 2016. We now have a chip on our shoulder, actually. Uh, likewise, if you look at the board exam preparation uh, on the internal medicine board exam, addiction medicine is not even listed as a medical content category. It does find its way down to the bottom of the cross-content category, uh, and I, I can't help but point out that it's still referred to by its old moniker, substance abuse. Um, you just can't win. Uh, and so in many ways, addiction medicine has been uh, the Theon Greyjoy of medicine, <laughs> for all those Game of Thrones fans out there, who was imprisoned by his father's enemies for uh, war crimes that he did not commit, later denied his right to the throne by his father, and who was eventually captured and physically and mentally tortured by the nefarious Ramsay Bolton, who ultimately castrated him. <laughs> a little bit of hyperbole, perhaps, yes, but hyperbole today goes a long way in politics, so why not here? Why not here? So this degree of underrepresentation by uh, within internal medicine led Dr. Patrick O'Connor and others to outline a roadmap for how should we integrate addiction medicine into graduate medical education. The time has come. Uh, so he argues that we should integrate addiction medicine competencies into primary care training. We need to assign these competencies the very same priority as all the other primary care content that we go over. We need to train and recruit faculty, and we need to establish, this is sort of a pie in the sky thing, but create a division of addiction medicine within your institution. And lastly, we need to integrate addiction medicine training into new models of interdisciplinary care. Now, when I was in Yale's primary care program, there was no experts or specialists within addiction medicine uh, during that time, which is ironic because Yale has been for a long time a premier center for research in addiction medicine. Lots of clinical research and bench research has been going on there for a very long time, but uh, actually a commitment to graduate medical education has really only come about within the past uh, five years or so. 
So when I completed my residency and my chief residency, there was a niche to be filled. Uh, I, uh, along with several other colleagues, looked at what addiction medicine teaching there was going on within our program, found that there wasn't a lot compared to what the recommendations were and what sort of content should be out there. So we did a needs analysis and then uh, created a brand new uh, curriculum within our primary care program, um, trying to make sure we got all the content and also use teaching strategies that aligned with uh, adult learning theory. This was our curriculum back in 2009. It's been through a number of iterations over the years, um, but ultimately we do a lot of uh, talks on urine drug screening, complications of alcohol use disorders, et cetera, et cetera. We make sure that uh, the majority, certainly half of our house staff get trained up on uh, how to prescribe buprenorphine and they get their waivers. And uh, there's a lot of peer teaching, mock debates. Uh, we go to a methadone dispensary, other forms of experiential learning, uh, that sort of thing. So that was all wonderful, but on the other side, we weren't really providing an educational environment where they could learn about addiction uh, at the point of care. And we wanted to create a setting where they could learn about addiction, the whole continuum with real patients rather than just talking about them in a classroom or, or at some other setting. So we created in 2014 the Addiction Recovery Clinic. Our goal was to educate residents about the biological basis for addiction and about available treatment options. But we wanted to do that while embedding this experience within our, our outpatient uh, primary care practice. So we're going to take care of our own patients in our primary care practice, but now add this educational uh, component to it. This is what our addiction team uh, looked like at the recovery clinic. There's uh, myself and Jeanette. We're both board-certified addiction medicine folks, even though we are generally uh, general internists and uh, clinician educators. We had a clinical psychologist. And then uh, we always have a chief resident who's sort of committed. This is, this, is, this is three years ago, but each year we have a different chief resident who's committed to helping out in the addiction recovery clinic. We have a social worker who's just part of our practice, a medical assistant who sort of targets our population. And then an addiction medicine fellow uh, variably plays a role in the educational uh, part. Of note, that looks like a really big team, but I really want to emphasize that our goal was to train up residents and have their skills at a level that when they leave, and go out into primary care, they can do this solo. They don't need to have a team like this. Um, you need to collaborate with a team. You need to have a relationship with an intensive outpatient program and with counseling and everything else. But I don't want people to walk away from this thinking you need uh, seven people on your team to make this work. Of course, the primary target, though, of our teaching was internal medicine trainees. And so we would have three to four residents um, there every week. And this is sort of what a, a schedule will look like for one of our residents. They're basically there every Tuesday morning for four consecutive mornings, and they do that for all three years of their training. Um, so they essentially get 12 half days uh, uh, built into their schedule, and all, all the house staff get that. We're providing all those medications that I described. We, of course, also manage a large population of folks with opiate use disorder and a smattering of other substances as well, marijuana, cocaine, a little bit of PCP, um, and occasionally smoking, but mostly just if they have other uh, comorbid substance use disorders. In the span of a year, we see this is sort of the, a general uh, listing of what our population looks like. Um, we see more patients with opiate use disorder than alcohol use disorder, but you can see uh, uh, many patients have both. Um, a large Medicaid population, but we bring in insurers, outside insurers as well. And uh, generally, residents see about five or six patients uh, in a given morning. 
Patients have really liked our addiction recovery clinic. 94% of them say that, they, that the ARC has probably or definitely helped them to cope with their addiction. 84% of patients report they were definitely satisfied with the overall treatment that they were getting there. And uh, one representative quote, I finally feel like I'm treated as a person and not like an addict, really trying to destigmatize uh, the treatment of these patients. And that's part of the advantage of being in a primary care setting as opposed to at a methadone dispensary. Going to a methadone dispensary is about as stigmatizing as, you can, as, as it can possibly be. Um, and so sitting next to people who have diabetes and high blood pressure and, and uh, uh, other primary care complaints, um, it's uh, much less uh, stigmatizing. And then from our residents, overall, the ARC rotation is very highly regarded. Uh, I was amazed by the clinic and think it's a wonderful opportunity, and I want to get more involved. I wrote that, actually, so just ignore that quote. <laughs> But they, uh, uh, the residents do like it. And I guess the best uh, testament to how successful it's been is we've had uh, three different residents uh, over the past few years who have decided to go on and do an addiction medicine fellowship. <clears throat> and of course, many of our providers, as I mentioned, have gotten uh, buprenorphine uh, waivers Etc. <clears throat> so I had sent to all of you, uh, to the house staff and to the faculty, a survey, um, and thanks Dr. Powell for helping to facilitate that. Uh, to basically get a sense as to how you guys are doing in terms of prescribing alcohol use disorder pharmacotherapy and how comfortable you are. So I'll show you those two slides. So to the question, I feel comfortable prescribing maintenance pharmacotherapy for alcohol use disorder. Um, shown here is the Likert scale here. And then in orange is YPC residents, Dartmouth residents, and then Dartmouth faculty. And I was delighted to see that the, the house staff here, they are, they know this stuff. So you've, you clearly have some great faculty leadership here teaching you how to use these medications. You can always do better, of course. We can always uh, learn how to use these things um, better. I mean, our, our house staff are still learning this stuff as well. But I was glad to see that in general, you guys somewhat agreed that you felt comfortable um, with the faculty, it was more of a, a distributed uh, uh, curve there, and I guess that belies also that a lot of the faculty who, who responded to the survey were not uh, necessarily general interns. They may have been subspecialists, et cetera. Uh, and then on this slide, which of the following have you ever prescribed for alcohol use disorder? Aside from uh, intramuscular naltrexone, pretty much the Dartmouth residents, they're using this stuff already. Uh, when you looked at how often they were using it in the inpatient setting, it was a bit less. But in general, um, the use of uh, disulfiram, acamprosate, and oral naltrexone was pretty good that, they've, that they're starting to use it. And then the other medications, I think, will, will creep up um, over time. I, mean, I don't know if there's an, an access issue for IM naltrexone. It may not be covered by your Medicaid uh, here in the state. I'm not sure, but we use, it, we use it a lot more, especially in the outpatient setting. So wrapping up my case, Mr. K follows up in the addiction recovery clinic. He receives his first shot of naltrexone intramuscular injection. He follows weekly, then biweekly, then monthly over the span of six months. He graduates from the addiction recovery clinic after nine months of sustained abstinence and transitions into primary care. And six months later, he was still abstinent. So in summary, alcohol use disorder is common. It's associated with considerable uh, morbidity. Current pharmacotherapies are effective. They're accessible by non-specialists, and they are profoundly underutilized. And the ARC is a novel, one potential approach uh, to building skills and expanding awareness of alcohol use disorder pharmacotherapy. Uh, I acknowledge my fellow Arconauts um, that uh, you saw in that picture earlier, all my mentors and colleagues who are addiction medicine-minded people down at Yale, and all my uh, colleagues um, within YPC who got their BUP waivers, which allows us to build capacity in our clinic. 
And with that, I will close. This is a picture of Iceland, which is an amazing summer trip for me. And I will close and take any questions you guys may have. Comments and questions? Harley, why are our residents so sophisticated? Because we're awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that, you know, again, I think that this is something that we have included in our curriculum. It's something that, um, that uh, interesting, I'm not sure that we've talked about it as a group in hospital medicine all that frequently, but it's something that we really try to incorporate, um, or at least my in my own personal practice, try to incorporate this care in patients who are admitted for alcohol abuse disorders. I do think that it is complicated. It always, it, as a hospitalist, it does worry me to start a new medication that's going to be sort of long-term and going to need, I mean, sure, these medications are safe and it's sort of yeah. little harm that can come from troubles, but um, but I do understand the conflict of, like, I'm starting a medication that then I'm yeah. sticking some primary care dog that they have to <clears throat> deal with, yeah. um, and, uh, and, and and although I'd like to say in a perfect world, I would call the primary care dog and talk to them about it and make sure that that handoff actually happens. Right. In the crazy world of hospital medicine, that doesn't always happen. Yep, I hear that. Yeah, well, you can do questions. We're going around the room. Williams, let's start with that. Uh, 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 Hospitalists start all kinds of medicine on our patients huh. for long term and without thinking about consequences for the PCP to pick up. Um, so it's not just these meds. But my, my real question was in all this literature, what is known about the use of these drugs in patients over the age of 75 who are really, it's a group of patients who yeah. really don't do a good job about screening? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a lot of data. Those, uh, at last year's Amherst meeting, the uh, medical education research and substance use meeting, there was a whole plenary on the geriatric population and substance use disorders and how much we are missing um, screening. We're just neglecting to screen that population. But depression is such a big factor in that population. Uh, social isolation, I mean, this is what causes people to drink alcohol. And so we need to be more uh, vigilant about screening for that population and having uh, quality measures and automatic screens that pop up on your screen when you're, when you're seeing uh, geriatric folks along with doing cognitive assessments and mobility assessments and everything else. Medications-wise, there's, uh, you know, I don't want to say that those patients are excluded from those studies, but there's certainly very tiny numbers that would be tricky to draw conclusions from as to whether one medication is better or worse in that population. So let's keep going around the room, William. So I'd like to go the other age. Yeah. As you know, uh, at Yale and many other, uh, many other schools, binge drinking in the undergraduate graduate population is huge. Yeah. And this would now, Traxon and I am would be great strategies. I've been applied there because, from what my understanding is, is that all strategies have failed in that population. All strategies have largely failed in that population. Um, medication, trying to convince a 19-year-old who thinks he's immortal uh, and binge drinks on weekends to take a medication, forget about it. Uh, it it's just very hard to, to make a compelling argument. Instead, the best Research has looked at cognitive behavioral therapy techniques that are like video assisted or very technologically um, uh, uh, sexy to, uh, to, to, I guess, undergraduate trainee, under, undergraduate trainees, to undergraduates. Um, and so I, I think most of the data that's out there is looking at these more behavioral approaches. Um, to curbing uh, binge drinking and having them think about reflecting on consequences and, and uh, looking at long-term goals and uh, using cognitive behavior, behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing, that sort of stuff. Medications, I, I don't think it's going uh, to have a lot of bang for its buck um, in that population. Mark? 
would be a typical dose range for the uh, Neurontin. Oh, great. Yeah, so there was a study in JGIM uh, in 2000 and, um, let's see, now I'm in 17, it wasn't last year, so 2015, where they looked at gabapentin and they came up with a number needed to treat of five to reduce heavy drinking days, and it was 300 milligrams three times a day, ramping it up to, uh, uh, to uh, 600 milligrams three times a day. And that sounds like a lot to get up to in a week, but if you're a heavy drinker, then 600 milligrams uh, or three times a day of gabapentin is, it, it goes in very easy. Goes in smooth. Uh, because you've already got all this alteration and maladaptive changes to your GABAergic neurotransmitter system. So getting up to 1,800 milligrams in a day in a week, piece of cake. And it's very effective. Um, a follow-up question to the question of age. In terms of subgroup analysis, for the response to pharmacotherapy. In addition to age, um, have there been studies looking at socioeconomic status and gender? Gender, yes. Um, and I know there's there's I know there's data around gender. You know what's what's really happening now is all of this uh, more gene targeted. Um, that's not the right phrase, right? Uh, uh, what do they call that science? Gene genotyping. genotyping, I guess so, yeah. So genotyping, where they're trying to look at, for example, for naltrexone efficacy, um, there's evidence that the OPRM1 uh, gene, which is one of the opioid receptor genes in, in the brain, there's different uh, allotypes for that gene. And depending upon if you have this subtype versus that subtype in your brain, these polymorphisms, that predicts that you will or will not be responsive to naltrexone. There's been a lot of investigation into that over the past five or 10 years for naltrexone, for disulfiram, for acamprosate, less so, I think, for gabapentin. But they're, of course, also looking at the, the, um, the gender discrepancies between, um, in, in the same regard, looking at these different phenotypes or genotypes and seeing how they manifest in terms of efficacy for these medications. We're not quite there yet. We're not at the point where we can um, get somebody's genome and predict if they will or will not be, uh, uh, you know, uh, get a benefit from taking naltrexone, but I think we're pretty close to that. And the same thing goes for, for gender. Socioeconomic status, um, definitely it's been studied in, um, in folks of lower socioeconomic status and higher socioeconomic status, uh, HIV populations, uh, et cetera. And uh, the data oftentimes comes down to these racial differences in, in these um, gene polymorphisms and things like that. So I'm not sure I can give you a an answer without going into a lot more detail, I guess. But We have Dr. Alan Green with us today, who's the chair of psychiatry and a reward center addiction uh, researcher. Mm -hmm. Alan, do you have a question or comment? Well, first of all, thank you for, uh, for your uh, talk. I really appreciate it. I think it's uh, really important to spread treatment and uh, identification of patients into general medicine. I think that's a key issue. And I know Harley's been uh, involved in that with the residents. It's really important. I want to just point out that you were saying that now Trexo, for instance, there are people who do not respond, obviously, mm. and and so the issue of how you predict exactly. who can respond, who can't respond. Gabapentin as an idea, there's a study that we actually have been part of that's just about finished now, uh, a multi-center study run by the NIH that will in fact, investigate a long-acting form of gabapentin and alcoholism. We will probably have the data on that in about six months. Wow. I, I don't know whether that will uh, give us a, yet another option, and probably will, yeah. I suspect. But there's a lot yet to be done. But I think this is great, and I think it's really important for people in medicine to understand. I mean, in psychiatry, we already have a specialty program. 
but we need to, we can't treat all the patients, and right. we don't need to. Right. And so I really appreciate what you're Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, Alan, what do you think about a, a focus of some kind of combined addiction work between medicines? Well, we have, we have people in medicine, we've had people in medicine in our IOPs, in our various yeah. addiction programs. I think that this is a, you know, it's, it's a little bit like cardiology. I mean, you have specialty programs, you have people who, primary care people who treat a lot of patients with cardiac disease. I think that's what we're trying to figure out how to do. It's true with depression, it's true with a lot of psychiatric problems. I mean, we can deal with the people who are more difficult to manage, and we can provide some of the training, yeah. because we have people who really have spent their entire careers doing this. But obviously, this needs to be the general medicine. That's where the patients are. You show it in the, in the numbers of whatever percentage of people who come into this hospital who have alcohol problems, or who have opioid problems, or have cannabis problems, and who have other, other substance problems. I mean, this is, we've got to think about this more broadly. You point out that this is a major risk for death and mortality and, and morbidity. It's absolutely true. James? So I completely agree with what things said, and I certainly have an interest in seeing it, seeing this stuff spread into primary care. Uh, but I just want to ask this question about, you know, you paint a very rosy picture with these medications, and clearly they work with a lot of people. But I'm going to imagine that people work with and that there are certain people that you really shouldn't try. There may be some dangerous So what kind of patients or what sort of risks would you as a primary care doctor look out for before you start, you know, trying to do and trying to prescribe them? Well, each, like any medication, there's contraindications, right? I mean, SSRIs, we give those things out like candy, right? Um, and we, we probably, we know that the one contraindication for an SSRI, really, other than prior problems with it, is we're worrying about bipolar disorder. And so we don't give it out indiscriminately. We screen for certain things to make sure it's a safe medication. These medications are no more dangerous than an SSRI. Um, Disulfiram, obviously, you don't want to give if they're still drinking. Uh, naltrexone, you don't want to give if they're on opiates. Uh, uh, a can cause diarrhea in like 17% of people. I mean, they're, they're drugs no different than so many drugs that we prescribe um, in primary care. And there's, uh, no, uh, there's no reason not to try them. They're, they're very safe medications. We just have to get comfortable. Once you prescribe it once, I promise you, you'll be like, wow, this was really easy. This is, there's nothing wrong with prescribing these medications. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So yeah. I've had several cases in my own practice where patients with very complex psychiatric histories with lots of with a very com complex mix of psychiatric medications sure. who also self-medicate. Yeah. And, you know, is that really the role of kind of care doctor getting involved with that? Do they, I mean, does that have to be done in consultation? You know, what's the threshold? Sure. I, you. Yeah, well, I, I think that's, that's the key to the very important question. I mean, there are people who use substances who are really complicated, and, and it takes someone with, with such the expertise to be able to really understand how to talk to these people, how to hear what's going on, Agreed. how to deal with them, how to use the medication, and, and maybe it'll be helpful, maybe it won't. Medication is not magic for a lot of these people. Absolutely. So you have to understand that. But, but what we're, I think what you're talking about is the general group of people who are using, misusing alcohol. And, and I think that this approach can be helpful. There are very few people who don't, for whom it isn't helpful at all. Yeah. And then I would refer those out. Yeah, gravely disabled people that you're talking about with comorbid psychiatric disease, absolutely, you need help with those. And, and, and I completely subscribe to that.
I'm going to, because of the timing, ask you to come forward. I want to make a correction in the code if you're putting it in for credit. It's small z, small h, 4, and it's a small p instead of the 3. The other thing I would say is I think I see Eifietla Yokola, which is the glacier that exploded a number of years ago, in that picture. And lastly, I want to thank you very much for coming here today. Good eye, good eye. Have you been there? Oh, good. Yeah, it's uh, I just it's one of my favorite.